All right, Galatians 6, 1 through 10. The sermon title this morning is The Glory of Christian Community. If you've been a part of the church for any period of time at all, you've had some bad church experiences. All of us have. I have. Because the church is not perfect. That's the point. Jesus is. We are not. And if you're in a community of people who love the Lord Jesus and have been changed by Him and the Holy Spirit is in their life and working in their life, inevitably there's going to be times in that community where people are going to be hurt. It's just a part of being a part of the church. The church isn't perfect, but Jesus is. To be involved in a Christian community is to willingly put yourself into a community that you know at some point along the way you're probably going going to be hurt, and at some point along the way you're probably going to hurt somebody else. It's a part of being in the body of Christ. It's a possibility because, as we've been seeing, Christians still have indwelling sin. And in light of that, in light of the church being a place where we can hurt one another, and if we did a show of hands, every, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, we've all, at some point or another, uh, been hurt at the church or been uh, on the other end of hurting somebody at the church, even if it's been unintentional. To be a part of the church can be messy, just the, the reality of, of church life. To be a part of this church is going to be messy. Given enough time over the long haul, and this is the, the, the most healthy group of people I've ever been a part of, but over, over the long haul, I can promise you that we're all going to, at some point or another, hurt one another. Not intentionally, it should not be malicious, but in light, in light of that true thing, in, in light of that reality, some people say things like this, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. You've heard that said before, you might have said that before. Often, those who claim to be super spiritual and above all of the church hurt life, above all, all of that, they don't like drama, and you know the people who say, I don't like drama, I don't like church drama, are the ones typically bringing the drama. But often those who claim to be spiritually superior, their folly is seen as soon as they start talking about the church, because what they say about the church is negative, it's coming from a place of bitterness, and we can certainly want the church to be more pure, more holy. We can certainly want the church to be better. But that does not come through snide comments. It does not come through hatred of the church. It does not come through bitterness with the church. Jesus loves the church very, very much. He loves his bride. You guys have heard me say this before, but if you came up to me and said, Jared, I like you, but I don't like Jordan, I wouldn't like you very much. It's just the way it is, because she's my bride. She's my one flesh. And the way we talk about the church... So often, anyways, in, within the church can be so negative, and we're talking about the bride of Christ, and we need to be careful what we say. On the flip side of that, on the flip side of pain and uh, self-inflicted pain that we often bring within the church, on the flip side is an amazing, wonderful, glorious community. Because as many of you have been hurt by the church, you've also been blessed and taken care of by the church. The Christian community is an amazing thing. When you love the church, when you love God's people, you experience a community that loves you, that cares for you, that's going to take care of you, that's going to fight for you, that's going to come alongside of you imperfectly as it may be, but they're going to fight for you to be as healthy as you possibly can. We look out for one another. We have each other's back. That's just what the church does. We love each other even enough to confront one another. And this is what the passage talks about today. Is the Christian community loves each other enough even to confront one another. Look at verse 10 in chapter 6, excuse me, verse 1 in chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you, be you too be tempted. Verse 2, we'll read down through verse, verse 5. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Gentle restoration, verse 1a, we're told, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Brothers, this is to Christians, it's very clear. The first word is brothers. If any Christian is caught in any sin, we have a, a call to action. We have a call to action from Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If any Christian is caught in any sin, we have our marching orders. You who are spiritual should restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. The spiritual one or the more mature one, the one that's walking in step with the Spirit, should come to the one who is walking in accordance with the flesh and restore that one with a spirit of gentleness. Now this is similar to Matthew chapter 18. And 
what's fallen out of favor so often within, within churches is this idea of church discipline. And church discipline starts as simply as chapter 6, verse 1. Restore the one who is in transgression with a spirit of gentleness. Now, how do you do that? How do you go about restoring one who is walking in sin, walking in the flesh, that's caught in a transgression? When you hear the word caught, you think of a trap or a snare. There, there's a, a transgression that somebody, that any Christian can be caught in, and it's like they're in a snare and they can't get out. So what are we to do? We're to restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. Now, Matthew 18 provides for us a great way to address sin in the body of Christ. Jesus tells us this very clearly. Now, I've been in situations before where I've wanted to pursue Matthew chapter 18 because somebody is caught in some sin or there's been sin committed against me. And one of the responses that I've heard back from somebody is that this does not work. That, that church discipline, restoring somebody with a spirit of gentleness, simply doesn't work. It only pushes somebody further away. So if you address somebody's sin, if you say to them, you're caught in a transgression, and I want to help you out of that, and I want to gently restore you, the response to me has been, but that doesn't work. It pushes people away. And we need to be careful that we don't find ourselves in a position disagreeing with Jesus or disagreeing with what the Holy Spirit tells us to do when somebody is caught in a transgression. Because in our mind, here's what we think. If somebody is caught in sin, and if we go to them and we say, hey, listen, you're caught, I want to help you out, we're going to offend that person, and that, first, that, that person's going to walk away and we'll never see him again. And there's some sense, I get, that, that that seems like that, but Jesus actually tells us our, our marching orders are completely different than that. We are to address the sin. Here in Galatians chapter 6, six we're, said, we're told, if any transgression, if you're caught in any transgression, if it's big or small, if the consequences seem large or small, it doesn't matter, restore in a spirit of gentleness. So Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 18, and this is specifically addressed to a brother sinning against you, but Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 would even broaden out the application of this into any sin. Here's what Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This can be applied to the situation in Galatians chapter 6. If any brother is caught in any sin, any Christian is caught in any sin, here's what you're to do about it. Hey man, you're caught in sin and I see this. And right now you might not even be able to see that this is a sin, but I want to help you out of this. And so you go to that person, you and that person alone, you don't broadcast it, you don't make it in the form of a prayer request like all of us have heard before. Hey, I want you to, you know, so-and-so, uh, their marriage is on the rocks, and so we just need to really be praying about this. And the whole point was this gossip sin that's inside of you had to come out, and it had to come out in the most pure way possible so it comes out in the way of a prayer request. We've all seen that before. But we're told by Jesus, go and address the sin face to face. Look at them in the eye. That's not there. But when you're going to be addressing somebody, you want to look them in the eye. You want to be direct. And you want to say, you're caught in sin. And I want to help you out. I want to restore you with a spirit of gentleness. So verse 15, again in Matthew 18, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But there's another way this could turn out. And this is what so many people want to avoid. They want to avoid this at all costs. And Jesus lets it happen. If it's going to happen this way, then it's going to happen this way. We pray it doesn't. But verse 16 tells us, If he does not listen, take two or take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you go and try to help somebody that's caught in sin and they say, Nope, no big deal, I don't want the help, then you bring somebody else along with you, one or two more. So in the presence of this other person who's caught in sin, they're able, able to see that this is not just some vindictive, it's not just somebody that's wanting to be annoying and call out and be nitpicky about every sin, that these charges can be established by two or three witnesses. Because if it's the person that made the initial confrontation with somebody else, there's two witnesses. If you bring two with you, there's three witnesses, and that charge then can be affirmed or confirmed in the presence of the person who's trapped in that sin or caught in that sin. So you're to take one or two with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So if the two or three go, and these principles could be exactly applied to, to Galatians 6 verse 1, and if you're trying to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness and they don't want anything of it at all, I want to stay in this sin, I'm trapped in this sin, then you're to come on a Sunday morning and this sin is to be presented to the church as a whole. This person is... Not walk, they're walking in the flesh, they're not walking in the spirit, they're caught in sin, and they are not responding. We've tried to help, we've approached them, we've gone through Matthew 18, and the whole church is to be told about it. 
That's one of the reasons why we vote people in the assembly. When we vote you in to the church membership here, you're voting into a community that's going to hold you accountable. And if it gets to the point, unfortunately, that, that Jesus takes us to here in a second, we would have to vote to expel somebody from church membership. We've had to do that before. And praise the Lord, if you were here with John, uh, John came back a year later and was restored to good standing because he repented in front of the whole church, which is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. But here's what Jesus says. If you refuse to listen even to the church, uh, uh, listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. And here's what that means. If that fails, you have to excommunicate the person, and then you have to treat them as if they were a non-believer, like a, like a tax collector or a Gentile. You have to treat them as if they're not even saved. That's your posture to them. So you have to go in Galatians chapter 6, and if you follow this pattern that Jesus lays out, and, and Paul the apostle would have known of this very, very well, if you go to that person and they don't do what, what they're told that they should do in Matthew 8, chapter 18, if they're not responsive to your gentle restoration, then they are to be excommunicated. You treat them as a non-believer. But the hope is just like in Matthew 18, instead they're convicted by the Holy Spirit and they say, you know what, you're right, I need help out of this. This is sin and I need to stop doing this. This is not healthy for me and I see in the presence of you or two or three witnesses that I've got to change this and I'm willing to, to walk in obedience here. And that's how church discipline should work. So we're to go in gentleness and address the sin of the person that's caught in the sin. But here's something we need to know when we do this. When we address the sins of others, we need to know that we are not bulletproof. We are not the savior of anybody. And when we go to help somebody get that speck or log out of their eye, we have to understand that there's also sin propensities in us. And there's a very real temptation when we help those who are struggling in sin that we may be deceived and say, oh, you know what? It's not really that big of a deal. And that we might be trapped in sin. And that's the, that's the check that Paul gives us in verse 1b, keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. So as you go to somebody that's walking in the flesh, not in the spirit, make sure, test, just make sure that you're in the right posture. You've got to keep watching yourself because there's going to be a temptation to side with the bad behavior. And if you've ever addressed bad behavior from somebody, when they start to tiptoe and they, they start to make excuses, it's very easy to say, you know... I, I see where you're coming from. It's really not that big of a deal. Has anybody ever been there before? Where you've talked to somebody and you've addressed it and you've thought, man, this isn't right. There's something going on. This is not healthy. You address the situation and you walk away from that situation thinking, wait a minute. I actually didn't say the very thing I intended to say because they weaseled their way out of it one way or another. So you've got to be careful that you don't walk away falling into the same temptation that they were walking in. So when you, when you try to help somebody, you have to watch yourself. Don't be deceived. Don't get pulled into the very sin you're wanting to pull your brother out of. Um, there is a, a big controversy on the internet right now between the words empathy and sympathy. And I think that there is a clear answer here. Sympathy, uh, empathy and the idea of empathy is, empathy is a very new word within the last hundred years. And the idea of empathy is a, uh, it's supposed to be more virtuous than the word sympathy. The idea is, okay, you're, sympathetic's great, but what really is great is if you're empathetic. And the idea with empathy is that you so identify with trying to help somebody that you actually get in the mud with them. And you feel their pain, and you listen to their experience, you hear their experience, and you weep with them. And after all, we're told to weep with those who weep. But what happens if you jump in with them, if they're in this trap of sin, if you jump in there with them and you feel that pain and you say, yeah, it's almost like you're jumping in and saying, yes, you're victimized by being caught into this sin. What ends up happening is you get down here all empathetic, feeling the pain with them, but you've lost your standing and your footing. And Doug Wilson does a really great job in this in the first episode of Man Rampant. You can find that somewhere if you Google it. But he and Dr. Joe Rigney talk about how Sympathy is the biblical virtue where you keep one foot on solid ground and then you put one foot down with somebody caught or trapped in that sin and you help them up out of it and you say, well, here's what God, God's word says. And you, don't, you leave one foot on that solid ground to where you're able to help them up out of it rather than just simply jump in there with them in it. In our day today, empathy is seen as more virtuous and if you fall into the trap of being empathetic rather than sympathetic, you'll find yourself feeling way too much and not being able to tell the truth from error. And so we have to be walking in the 
godly biblical virtue of sympathy to be able to help those who are trapped in sin. We help them, we don't wallow with them. It is not a good thing to wallow with somebody in the pit as they're being trapped by sin. Victimhood is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's really an American empire, a modern American empire, and it's so seductive. Yeah, you have been victimized. You have, it is, it's not your fault. It really isn't your responsibility. This has happened to you, and certainly there are things that happen to people. Please hear me. Even if you have been victimized, you are not a victim. You have been victimized, but you don't have to stay there forever. You can walk in healing. You can walk in restoration. The Bible gives us examples of this all over the place, of people who had awful things happen to them, and they walked in wholeness and healing. They had people come alongside of them. Instead of just being here and saying, yes, you are a victim, and you're always going to be a victim, and you're a permanent victim, they've had people who have come alongside and said, yes, now, as painful as this may sound, Jesus, Jesus can walk you through this. He can walk you out of this. You are not only are you not responsible for what happened to you, but you can even be at the place that you forgive the one who did that harm to you, no matter what it was. And that, to those who are walking in the sin of empathy, sounds almost like anathema. Like, no, you can't do that. Don't, don't lead somebody in and tell them that they've got to forgive their abuser. And yet the Bible tells us that that's exactly what has to happen. Healing is often on the other end of forgiveness And what empathy can allow people to do is just remain in victimhood forever and they actually never, never walk in healing that's provided and offered for them. Don't feel sorry for people trapped in sin. Get them out. Okay? Don't feel sorry for people trapped in sin. We get each other out. That's what we do. We bear one another's burdens. That's what we're told. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. That's what Christians do. Yes, the church can harm one another, unfortunately, but the church is called to come alongside and care for one another. You got a burden? Brother, I want to help you out. I have burdens. I need help. We all have burdens together. We need help with the things that we carry, with the sins of the flesh. We need help. The way we fulfill the law of Christ, which is loving your neighbor as yourself, is to help each other carry the burdens that we have. Now, burden in this specific context would be the sins of the flesh. We all have sinful burdens. Now, we also have like responsibility burdens, like I've got a lot to do this week, those kind of burdens, and we can help each other out. But specifically, we're talking about sin burdens. And we're called, with the burdens that other people have, to help them. So there is no such thing as just Jesus and me Christianity, which can be so popular. I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Well, man, you're missing out with people who want to help carry your burdens. And you actually have burdens, that, and they have burdens that they need your help with. And you're opting out of the very thing that we're told is the law of Christ. Burdens are sin. If we rightly understand this, then we, we realize that we are interdependent. We need each other. We have to have each other. The Holy Spirit leads us to help one another. And as I'm helping you, you're helping me. We carry one another's burdens. If you understand this wrongly... And we're going to see the consequences of this here in a minute. If you understand that wrongly, you're going to end up thinking that you are the fixer of everybody. You're going to get a savior complex. Because if you believe everybody else has burdens, but you don't, and this is a, unfortunately a trap of many pastors, where there's a kind of this elite mentality where I fix you, and I don't need you to help me. It's a savior complex, because you believe everybody else has burdens, but you don't have any. So I'm the needed one in the community, the most needed one in the community, and if I'm not there, the community's going to go to pot. And sadly, it can be a trap not just for pastors, but for a lot of people, where it's like the savior complex. I'm everyone's fixer. I don't actually have burdens. You're the burden I'm taking care of. (laughs) And so we get a helpful warning against spiritual pride. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And here's the helpful warning, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In a community of people, pride can be its downfall. If you think more of yourself than you should, you are deceiving yourself. When you think about yourself, if you think, man, I am something, I'm amazing, I'm awesome, which is what the world tells you to repeat mantras about yourself all the time, And the Bible's telling you, if you think you're something when you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself. The grace of God is like 
a nuclear atomic bomb or atomic nuclear bomb. Atomic and nuclear bombs are different, I think. And oh, by the way, since I'm talking about science here, my father-in-law, his birthday is tomorrow, right? Dennis, yeah, Dennis's birthday is tomorrow. So I wish him a happy birthday when he gets a chance or when you get a chance. Um, but so atomic, and I would ask him, atomic bombs and nuclear bombs are different, right? Is that Dennis or Susan, do you know? He would know, yeah. Um, that's what grace is to pride. It annihilates pride. But the proud man or the proud woman thinks that they have much to do in a community and they have much to bring and much to contribute and if they're removed from that community, that community is going to be massively diminished and not going to keep going. And the warning here is, don't be a narcissist. I'm something. No, you're not. The something in the room is Jesus. The someone in the room is Jesus. And we bear one another's burdens, and the way we bear one another's burdens is, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's go to Christ together. We put our arms around each other. We go to Christ. Hey, listen, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so we're going to go to Christ together. And the one who thinks they don't have to do that is actually walking in self-deception. Thinking much of yourself is playing with fire. And so we have to test that deception. Look at verse 4. This week... This really, I mean, it came together for me because this passage for years has confused me. And a uh, commentary I was reading this week said many commentators view this passage in this way. And that this is a statement of irony, but I don't think it's that way. And it was Calvin who said this. And I think Calvin was wrong here. And I disagreed with him. And I actually thought, oh my gosh, this being an ironical statement actually works really helpful and it unlocks it for me. And so I, I look at verse 4 and it used to confuse me because it says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And this confused me like crazy because in verse 3 it said, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then in verse 4 it says, but let each one test his own work and his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And that sounds a little weird when you're nothing, but then now test your own work and because of your own work, you're able to boast. But then later on in the same chapter in verse 14, here's what Paul says. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Use the same word, boasting. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 4 it says, And then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor alone. So I'm reading commentaries on this and looking at this and thinking, this still has been just confusing to me over the years. I've preached this multiple times, but how does this, how does this passage, one verse after another that seems so at odds with each other, how does this work? And then I read this. Let no man who says he measures himself by the standard of another or please him himself with the thought that others appear to him less worthy of approbation. Let him lay aside all regard to other men, examine his own conscience and inquire what his own inquire at his own work. It is not what is gained by detracting from others, but what we have without any comparison that can be regarded as true praise. Now, here's what he says, and this is what I now agree with his uh, defectors here. Some consider Paul to be speaking in irony that Thou, thou flat, flatterest, flatterest thyself by comparison with the faults of others. But if thou wilt consider thy own, thou wilt then enjoy the praise which is justly due them. In other words, no praise whatsoever shall be thine, because there is no man by whom the smallest portion of praise is really deserved. And he said, some say this, others don't say this. And so let me summarize this very much. To the one who thinks he is something, you're nothing, and then test your own work, then your reason to boast will be in yourself and not in others. Now, here's what I think is being said. Then your reason to boast, as you're testing your own work, as you're thinking, I don't have any burden to bear, and as you're testing it, if you'll be honest, you'll be boasting in your prideful narcissism and not that you're better than your neighbor. And when you find yourself boasting in your own pride, I don't have burdens to bear, they have burdens to bear. When you find yourself boasting in that pride, you will find that you have been deceived. And so here's what I think Paul's saying. When you find yourself, when you test your own work, and then you start boasting about your own work and not your neighbor's, you start thinking, wait a minute, I'm boasting in my own work, and I'm the one that thinks that 
I'm the savior of everybody, and you're going to feel gross about it. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. And so what I think Paul is doing is he's giving a warning here. Look at yourself. If you don't think you have burdens to bear, and you think that everybody else has those burdens to bear, when you see that, when the Holy Spirit helps you see that, and as you're looking at your own load that you're carrying, and you're going to see, oh my gosh, I do have sin. It's this thing called pride or narcissism. This thing called, I'm the savior of the world. And you find yourself boasting in that, hopefully you're going to take a step back and say, that can't be right. That can't be right. And I think that's what Paul is calling to do. Test the deception. When you find yourself boasting in your own pride, it's gross. Your own deception is revealed. And then here's the truth. You actually do have a burden to carry. Everyone Everyone has a burden to carry. Nobody gets to opt out of this sin battle, this burden-carrying business. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. So as that person is being tested, the deception is being exposed, he or she realizes, I'm no one's savior. I do have a burden to carry. The prideful man needs to know that he has burdens as well. He's just like everyone else. We all have these burdens to carry. We need other people to help us. Nobody can do the island life. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You've got to annihilate the Jesus and me idea. You have to have people come alongside of you. You will be held accountable for your sin. You have burdens to bear. You need other people's help. And this should be obvious. But for the one who is self-deceived, it's hard to see. But there's another way to live. Self-deception is no way to live. There's a better way. There's a better way. We have two alternative passages we're going to look at today, just like we did on, at Matthew 18, we're going to look at a couple others. And so here in a second, we're going to be flipping a little bit. Verse 6 and 7 tells us that self, self-deception is no way to live. There's a better way. Look at verse 6. But let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. There's a better way to live. Now, this first verse we're looking at is a really weird, weird verse for me to talk about because it says, take care of those who teach you the word. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Instead of living a self-absorbed um, existence, instead of walking in that deception, give to those who teach you the word. Share. There's a balance in the Bible here. And here in a minute, you're gonna, we're going to see the dots connected with the above passages. But there is a, uh, there's a balance in the Bible that we should be aware of. Pastors are to preach the gospel no matter what, even if they don't make a living by preaching that gospel. That's what Paul does in Corinth. He sets aside that right of his. He was a single man. He didn't have a family, and he had a ton of time on his hands, and single folks who think you're busy, you have no idea. (laughs) You can work 40, 50 hours a week. You can give 30, 40 hours a week to the church. You can keep going. You can go, 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 go. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 7, that's one of the advantages of being single in that particular time of the present distress, and I think that that present distress was the present distress then, but if you are a single person, if you are gifted with the gift of celibacy, then you can give a lot of time, and we see this in the Apostle Paul, and so he set aside that work. He could do full-time work and full-time ministry, no pro- problem. But there has been a push over the years, over the last 20 years or so, there was a book uh, written by Frank Viola, I think his name was, uh, years ago about, called Pagan Christianity. And many people in trying to say, we want to get back to the early church, will say things like, well, pastors weren't paid in the early church. There was no such thing as, as pastors being taken care of by the church. They're just one member in the church, and, and everybody just was the exact same. And there's no such thing as that in the Bible. And that's just flat wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 8, and uh, we can see this here um, in 1 Corinthians. I have two ribbons in my Bible. I don't have four. I wish I had four. Some of your Bibles, I think JT's has four ribbons. Is that true in your Bible? It has two. Adam, does yours have four? It just has one? Okay, it was Andy's that has four. I knew somebody I knew had four ribbons. And in 1 Corinthians we see something that's very interesting because we see Paul addresses this very issue. He addresses this issue. This is 1 Corinthians in chapter 8. Or excuse me, chapter 9, starting in verse 8. 
here's what he says. And the balance here is, and we see this, that the people in the church should be sharing with those who are teaching the word. This is, guys, this is weird for me to talk about, but it's there, so we need to address it. Um, the balance is, it shouldn't mean that I'm, or any preacher, is filthy rich. Okay? No preacher, rather ecumenical, like, there's no preacher that should be, should be. There's nothing wrong with riches, and I know it's relative around the world. But within a congregation, if the pastor is the richest person in the congregation or among the top 5%, there's something, pro- there's something wrong with that. Now, th- this is uh, through prudence and wisdom in the Holy Spirit. It would just be very strange if the pastor was making as much as the top 5% within the church. It doesn't mean that they need to be a pauper, making within the lowest 5% within the church, but it's just a very odd thing. But here's what Paul says, and this should be for every pastor. Every pastor should be willing to preach the gospel without any remuneration for it. But here's what Paul says. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. It is for oxen. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope that the thresher thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything or anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It keeps going. So there's nothing wrong with, in fact, it should happen in which those who are preaching the word should also make a living by it. But here's what Paul says should be in the willingness of every single preacher and proclaimer of the gospel. But I made no use of any of these rites. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if I do it, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my rights in the gospel." Every preacher should be willing to do whatever God has called him to do, even preach when he does not get paid. But God has designed it that those who work should receive some remuneration from that work. The Lord Jesus commanded commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Do not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Now that doesn't mean massive amounts of anything, and it certainly, which is the easy gig, does not mean a jet plane. Like that's the easy, like, like low-hanging fruit, right? On a personal note, thank you for doing what Galatians chapter 6 says to do for us. I can't tell you how many people here have loved us and made, it, made us feel at home. We feel like, because we are, we're members of the church. We feel very taken care of here. You guys have loved us well. We know we're loved by you. Now, this specific thing is used, Paul's using this example here, as representative of bearing one another's burdens and living selflessly. It's the first example that he gives. You have a burden, bear one another's burden. This is the first example he gives in this passage. Let one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. It's used as a representative example of bearing one another's burdens and living sacrificially. It's like Paul is saying, if you don't take care of the one who is teaching you the word, then you're going to be off in so many other areas as well. There are implications to that. Now he brings us back to deception. Verse 7 and 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh... Will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. As we bear one another's burdens, as we walk out of self-deception, we're told a principle that's a universal principle It's seen everywhere. What you sow, you reap. If you plant corn, you get corn. You don't get watermelon. If you sow sin, you reap more sin. Lies lead to more lies, lead to more lies, lead to more lies. That's the principle. If you act badly, things will go badly for you. If you do something wrong, there's going to be consequences for that wrong behavior. 
The flip side of that is that when you sow what you reap or reap what you sow, if you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. You sow to the flesh, you're going to get flesh. You sow to the Spirit, you're going to get eternal life. Now, this is not talking about justification because Andy said this last week in a passing comment. It was so helpful. He said, we reap what Jesus sowed. In a justification sense, the life that we had lived, what we deserve to receive back from God, is really bad things. It's God's wrath. We, however, get to reap what Jesus sowed. He lived the perfect life. We get to reap the reward of his perfect life. And what does Jesus reap? What did he reap on the cross? He reaped what we sowed. This is the great exchange. This passage, though, is not about justification. It's about sanctifications. Sanctification. Christians sow to the Spirit. This is a descriptive passage. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Christians, in other words, don't have an option to not reap to the Spirit. We do not get to live lives reaping, or excuse me, sowing to the flesh over and over and over again. We do not get to do that. Christians are ones who, by the grace of God, through the help of the Holy Spirit, we sow to the Spirit. We obey the Lord. As imperfectly as it may be, we come together on a Sunday morning. This is a small example right here of brothers and sisters in Christ wanting to obey the Lord, gathering in the Lord's day, on the Lord's day, week in and week out. We do the exact same things over and over again. We meet in large groups and we meet in small groups. We open our Bibles through the week, we pray. We want to honor the Lord as we work as men and women of principle. When we're our, ladies, when you're in, our, in your home and you're doing your work as unto the Lord, you're doing it by the grace of God and through the help of the Holy Spirit, and you're wanting to do that joyfully. Men, as you're going to work, JT and I were talking this week. He was, can I share the story when you're saying, why is it so hard? And I get this. He was working in an air conditioner, and he, he was just angry, and he said, why does everything have to be so hard? Guys, how many times have we been there? How many times have you been there, ladies, whatever it may be, when you're working on something and the thought is, why does everything have to be so difficult? Why doesn't it just work? I'm doing the directions. I'm fixing it like I fixed it before. Why isn't it not working? And we're wanting to walk in obedience rather than walk in disobedience and sin. We want to walk in the Spirit. To the Spirit, not so to the flesh. That's what it means to help one, bear one another's burdens is encourage one another. Come, hey, sow to the Spirit. Stop sowing to the flesh. I want to help you out of that trap. I don't want you to be caught in sin. Sow, sow to the Spirit. We hear this in Romans chapter 6, and this is the other passage we're turning to today. We had three reference passages today. In Romans chapter 6, it says something so helpful, and this is so observable in life. It's observable in our life and in your life as well. Verse 19 to 22, it says this, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, and the idea Paul is getting is lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. This is how you used to live, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, and that led to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So the way you once lived, sowing to the flesh, now sow to the Spirit. Obedience leads to more obedience, leads to more obedience, leads to more obedience. So when you think about sanctification over the long haul, it can feel really daunting. Living in a Christ-like manner, the more and more, the older you get... Here's what seems and is so much more simple. What is obedience right now in this very moment? And whatever that, that step of obedience is, we take that step of obedience, and as we obey, that leads to a habitual living of walking in step with the Spirit, obeying one step at a time. And so as sin leads to more sin, so does righteousness lead to more righteousness. You obey more and more, you start to see, oh my goodness, I'm obeying more and more through the power of the Spirit. And people are recognizing this. They're observing this. More and more obedience. We give ourselves to that. Verse 20, for if when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Almost exactly what we read in Galatians chapter 6. Eternal life is on the other end of living in the Spirit. Now this is not works-based salvation. This is a description of the Christian life. 
Life in the Spirit is inevitable for every Christian because it's the Spirit of God at work in you, but to will and to work for God's good pleasure. There is no such thing as a Christian who lives according to the flesh all the days of their life. Every Christian battles the flesh all the days of their life. But there's no such thing as a Christian who continually and habitually all the days of their life sows to the flesh and only sows to the flesh. The Christian is one who sows to the Spirit and reaps eternal life. The other end of the Spirit-filled life is eternal life. That's what the life of the Spirit is doing inside of you. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is coming out of you. You are not forcing the Spirit to work the fruit of the Spirit in you. That's what the Spirit is doing in you. You see, there's so many things in life that we, are, we talk about active or passive. The Holy Spirit is actively working in you, and you are being changed from the inside out. And your activity, behind all of your activity in the Spirit, is the Spirit of God motivating it. God is at work in you, as I said, both to willing to work for His good pleasure. The other end of the Spirit-filled life is eternal life. That's what we're to sow to. Sow to the Spirit. Obey today. One step of obedience after another. Verse 9, we get back to the battle. Verse 9, we see this. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We will reap. The Christian life can be tiring. And depending upon your sin struggles, your struggles with the flesh, sanctification can be exhausting. And I've seen many people that feel beat up and feel like they can't make any progress at all in their Christian life. And it really, it, it literally feels like being stuck in the mud and you can't get out. It's just, I'm a Christian and yet I still feel like I, I'm not getting anywhere. And it may be certain seasons of your life where you feel like three years, it's been three years and I feel like my prayers have at the ceiling and I feel like my feet are still in the mud and I've been able to just barely, barely lift my legs. It doesn't feel like there's any victory at all. And it can be frustrating. It can be frustrating because sinful actions. Uh, there's times that we sow to the flesh when we know we should be sowing to the spirit. Um, and that's going to be a battle, like I said, to the day we die. But there's many people, many people that you know who have gotten tired with their fight against the flesh and they just succumb to it. I'll never be able to get over this. And so that becomes their life, their identity. I can't get through this particular sin. I can't overcome this particular battle. And so they're taken out. It may not be by death. It may not be by self-inflicted death. But they're taken out. We see people that shipwreck, shipwreck their faith. It's, like they, it's the tares and the wheat. They started off and everything looked so great. And in the end, you look around and you wonder, where are they? And they're gone. They've walked away. And sadly, many people don't understand, unfortunately, um, they've, they've given up, and they don't understand the difference between justification and sanctification. I think one of the things that makes us so weary in spiritual battles is because we confuse justification and sanctification. And we hear these words, do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap when you not give up, if you do not give up. When you understand that justification, or excuse me, when you understand that the battle, when you think that the battle is what justifies you, and that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about justification. If you think it's the battle that justifies you, that can be incredibly exhausting. It's like a wet blanket. Like those embers that are there, the fire that you have in your belly, the, the Holy Spirit's at work in you. When you miss that Jesus is your justification and you think that the battle is your justification, and that we're all just trying to help each other get, get saved, get justified. We're bearing one another's burdens so that maybe we will be justified. It's exhausting. When you think the battle that justifies is what justifies, it's easy to walk away saying things like this. I tried being a Christian. It didn't work. It didn't take. I couldn't do it. It was too much for me. Man, I tried that years ago. I mean, I went to church for like five years. I went to small group. I was reading my Bible. It just didn't work. Didn't work. I just stayed the same. I couldn't do it. But when you understand that justification by, is by grace through faith in Christ alone, it gives you fuel for that battle. When you understand that it's not the battle that saves, when you understand that you are right with God, you get to start living like it. Not out of, con not out of condemnation, but out of the fuel which is the grace of God. 
We're say, Paul's saying, sow to the spirit, not to the flesh, and don't give up. What gives us fuel to not give up? Well, it's what the whole book of Galatians about, is about. Grace. It's what we're hearing here. We're encouraging one another. Don't give up. You belong to the Lord. Don't give up. Your head's down. Get your head up. Let's go. You feel tired and weary? All right. Well, let me help you. Let me get you some spiritual Gatorade. I'm going to send you verses every day. We're going to pray every day. Let's meet, meet together for lunch or breakfast or something. And let's walk this thing out together. Let's talk to each other. Let's get on Boxer and box each other. Let's encourage one another and bear each other's burden. But do not give up, man. There's good on the other side of this thing. Don't give up because on the other side, we will reap in due season if we do not give up. Don't throw your hands in the air and walk away. Stay in the fight. Don't give up. So what to do in the meantime? Well, here's some practical steps. Back to the practical. Verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. How do you not grow weary of doing good? You have other people bear one another's burdens with you. You pursue step in being in step with the Spirit. You sow to the Spirit, and you don't give up at all. You keep going. You keep staying in the fight. You have other people come alongside of you. And then the practical step is you do good. Do good. Today, do good. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those at the household of faith. You're in a battle and you don't know what to do? Take your attention off the battle for a minute and do the next right thing. Do good. What is the good thing for you to do in the midst of spiritual battle, in the midst of spiritual warfare? What is the good thing for you to do? The right thing is always the next thing to do. As opportunities come, and that's what it says, as we have opportunity, as it presents itself, let us do good to everyone. So do the right thing. But then there's something very specific said, and I think this is so important, so crucial. It says, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of faith. Especially those who are in the household of faith. The priority of the Christian life in the Christian community is the body of Christ. That's the priority. We're to do good to everyone, but before we're to do good to the non-believer, and this goes against, by the way, like all modern evangelism principles, it just goes against all of that. Before you're to do good to a non-believer, you're to do good to a Christian brother or sister. We take care of ourselves before we take care of non-Christians. Now, it's not that we're mean to them, because we're to do good to everyone as, as the opportunity comes, but the priority of our life is not first the non-believing neighbor that we have. Our priority is each other. We are the body of Christ. That is the priority. Christians take care of each other before we take care of non-Christians. And the, the common error is that when the church cares more for the non-Christian world, then all of a sudden, somehow, the environment is set and uh, we're not going to harm one another and all the worlds are going to become Christians because we're more focused on non-Christians than we are on Christians. We've got to make the focus non-believers. I've got to turn my attention and live my life with evangelistic zeal, which evangelism is good. But the focus of your life should never be a lost person before it is the body of Christ. And you think, well, man, that sounds wrong. Well, let me just quote Jesus from John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you're my disciples when you have love for everybody else. Right? Doesn't say that, does it, Scott? Uh, by this, you'll know that you're my people, you're my disciples. Everybody will know you're my disciples if you have love for the world. If you're brokenhearted over the lost. No? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One another. It's interesting that the world and people out there recognize that they are disciples, that we are disciples of Jesus Christ because we love each other. Not because we love them. It's not that we don't love them. We have a priority here. We take care of each other. If the economy falls apart, we, have, we build our own economy right here. What can you do? What can I do? Okay? We take care of one another. That's what the body of Christ does. That's the glory of Christian community. So yeah, we've all been hurt. We've all maybe been on the wrong side of hurt, hurting somebody else. But what we're told in the scriptures, even with Galatians, the book of Galatians, as we get close to wrap things up, is that Christian community can be an amazing thing where we help people out of sin, we encourage people to sow to the Spirit, we bear one another's burdens, we don't walk in pride and narcissism, we walk away from that deception, and we take care of each other 
before we take care of the world. We certainly do good to the world, but we want to take care of others. Or, excuse me, we want to take care of the body of Christ. The glory of Christian community is not that we're trying to impress the world. That's not the glory of Christian community. Or that we're trying to be cool. If you're trying, if we as a community, one of the best ways for us to harm one another is to have all our intention on lost people and not bearing one another's burdens. Is giving away, giving money away to non-Christians before we take care of each other. That's why if there's a financial need, please make it known because we take care of each other before we take care of the people on the street. This is what we do. We love each other. One reason so many Christians get hurt by the church is because the church thinks that they are to take care of the world first. It's a fundamental error. The glory of Christian community is that Jesus bought a family. He bought a family. And his family takes care of one another. We love each other. We fight for each other. We comfort each other. We don't gossip, slander, or backbite against each other. You know, one of the great things about our church, and we, Jordan and I have talked about this quite a bit, we don't have a gossip problem here, which is an amazing thing. It's the only church I've ever been a part of. We, don't, we literally have no annoying people here. We don't have any... Oh, Rick. Rick's like, you don't know me well enough yet. We don't have gossips. In fact, if people were, go- were to gossip, we'd all be like, man, that's really weird. You really need to stop that. You need to go to that person. Stop doing that. I love this group of people. We fight for one another. We love each other to confront one another. If we see anybody caught in any sin, please, 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 this needs to be an environment where we confront one another, where we help each other out. Hey, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to help you out. Let's go. You can't, you're, no, you're not a victim. You can't stay a victim. Let's go. Forgive, and let's move forward. You can't stay there forever. Let's go. We love each other. Encourage one another. We battle against the flesh for and with each other. We take on the world. We take on the flesh. We take on the devil. And we do that together. And you know what? We're going to win together. We're going to gain ground together. And I expect by the grace of God, as God continues to build this kind of community here, 30 years from now, this community of people is going to have more impact. There's going to be more people who know Jesus. There's going to be more healthy families. There's going to be more people in the workforce. There's going to be more healthy business owners in southern Illinois 30 years from now than there are right now because of this Christian community. Not less. Because there's going to be a group of people fighting for one another and caring for one another. And I'm expecting, I am expecting for us, as we do not give up, we're going to see God do some amazing things. Do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray.